Donald Trump attacks a local union boss in a dust-up over carrier promises. Police want to take DNA from everyone they arrest for a felony. That, plus Dan Coates' farewell and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending December 9th, 2016. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, President-elect Donald Trump's latest Twitter attack was aimed at local Steelworkers Union President Chuck Jones. The disagreement stems from the number of jobs saved in Trump's deal with Carrier. At the time, Trump said 1,100 jobs were saved, but it's only about 800 positions in Indianapolis. The other 300 or so were jobs never moving to Mexico. Steelworkers Local 1999 President Chuck Jones went on CNN taking issue with Trump's statements. I just wish that he'd have had the numbers down and he'd have been up front with 800 people's jobs staying here in Indianapolis because we had a lot of our members when the word was coming out of 1100 they thought uh, that they would have a job and in order and then they find out the next day after next Friday that most likely they weren't 550 who were still going to lose their jobs. Jones did credit Trump with saving the jobs that he did though he's also said Trump quote lied his ass off. In response, Trump tweeted that Jones has done a terrible job representing workers and laid the blame for companies leaving the country at Jones and the Steelworkers Union's feet. Trump also says the union should reduce its dues. Is this the latest back and forth? Is this latest back and forth a good look for the president-elect? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. And Delaney, was it fair of Chuck Jones to go around criticizing Donald Trump after 800 jobs were saved? Yes. I mean, you, you, unlike the president-elect, it is important to get the numbers correct. I mean, he plays loosey-goosey with all of his facts and figures. But the fact of the matter is more jobs are leaving than are staying. And that's a concern because he had originally promised they weren't going to go. Uh, he did get credit. From the, from the union leader uh, about the fact that 800 were saved, and that's, that's fair, because he did get credit for that. But the rest of it is just hyperbole. Uh, and, and the idea that you would be the president-elect of the United States and start a Twitter war um, and, and cyber-bullying a union leader is just, it so denigrates the office, it's incredible for me to see that. Was this cyberbullying by Donald Trump? Cyberbullying a union leader. Yeah. Look, <laughs> that's a new one. I, I think the I think well, the, he's the, the new president. The, look, the story here is if Hillary Clinton had been elected, we wouldn't be talking about saving jobs at all. We'd be talking about more going overseas or more going to Mexico. We'd be talking about Bernie Sanders becoming the next ambassador to North Korea. I mean, we would not be talking about eight hundred jobs being saved. Um, and that's the bottom line in this: that the that Democrat policies over the last eight years have forced companies like Carrier to offshore jobs because they can't make oh, it here. That's come changing. On. That is changing. Come on. That's not these why are, they're going. Are, they're going for guys. profit. These That's are, all they're doing. They're going for profit because you and the Republicans have made the tax code so advantageous for them to move jobs overseas. That's what's going on here. It has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. 
Yeah, is it, is it fair to blame the union and its dues for, for companies leaving the yeah. country? I'm not blaming the union and its dues. I'm, well, not, the blame, I'm not blaming Chuck Jones. I'm did. blaming EPA regulations. I'm blaming high taxes. I'm blaming high health care costs that we've gotten over the last eight years that, that were union members who are making a great living. They're making sixty dollars to $70,000 a year. Wow. These, 800, wow. these 800 jobs pay, pay a lot of money. We should pay $3 a day like they're going to get in Mexico. That's what we should pay them. I'm not, who's Ungrateful saying that? I'm not, wretches. I, Who's saying that? I'm not arguing for that. Okay. We are arguing for making it affordable to do business in this country. It's affordable. For an affordable tax it's climate, affordable, for affordable regulatory climate, and low health care costs. CEOs 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year. It's affordable to do business in this country. John Schwannis, last week when we talked about the carrier deal, we talked about uh, a lot about perception. So I want to talk about perception again. Is, is it a good look when the president-elect of the country is singling out a private citizen? No, probably not. And, and again, the news was good. He had saved through whatever means, uh, agreeable or disagreeable, the 800 jobs. Leave it there, and you still can declare victory. But when you have this situation where it turns into a bit of a scrum over, uh, you know, was it this, was it that, is this person lying, is that person lying, it raises unnecessary questions or takes a little bit of the luster, it seems to me, off of the, the accomplishment and muddies it a little bit. And that's... Again, perception, though, I, it's, it's different with Donald Trump. Even his critics would say he's a great salesman, a great pitch man, a deal maker. And maybe when he was in the private sector, you know, the biggest gets inflated a little bit, bad news gets, you know, waxed over a little bit. That's not the arena in which the president typically plays where a staff is going over every statistic to make sure there's, it's buttoned up and make sure there's no room for, for criticism or error. Now, the question is how will media and, more important, the public react to this era of what the dictionary now, I guess, says is post-truth. Is that the, the era of post-truth? Mm -hmm. And if there is, no, there is no accountability for inflating numbers, well, then I guess we'll continue to see it. If there is some sort of accountability uh, brought to bear, well, then we may see a little more care exercised in the numbers uh, that are used going forward. John Katzenberger, uh, Donald Trump still is president-elect and not president. Do you expect this sort of thing, this sort of back and forth, this sort of Twitter attack to continue once he actually assumes the oath, takes the oath? Well, well, since he's already burst through all those doors and bashed through all those windows already, uh, I think the answer is yes. Um, there was the thought that once he got the nomination, he would back it down, and that didn't happen. And then there's He's won the election. Well, he'll back it down, and that hasn't happened. So I think we're seeing what we're going to see. That's the one constant and consistent here is that uh, we're always surprised by Donald Trump, and we probably shouldn't be because he is what he is. Uh, I agree with the assessment that this is not what we've seen in a president before. And personally, as a citizen, I just assume he'd uh, you know, put the Twitter away and deal with these things on a you know, person-to-person -person or issue-to-issue -issue basis. I think that's better for the stability of the country and, and the policy going forward um, because this is classic bullying. Um, you saw it with Boeing and the, the, the um, issue over the new Air Force One contract and how that was a number that was not actually the case. Uh, and he hit a tweet, and the value of Boeing's stock went down $2 a share almost immediately. It regained it. But that's the kind of power that, that he wields. He doesn't realize it. He kind of looks like one of those uh, um, uh, kids on, on, uh, in Hogwarts from you know, Harry Potter, and he's got his new wand, and he doesn't know what he can do with it yet and what damage it can wreak if he's not careful. And, and I hope he learns quickly. Oh, Michael O'Brien does... Do, do, does the, the seemingly petty attack here take a little of the luster off of last week's announcement? 
Um, well, it's not helpful. I mean, it's, I wish he'd put the Twitter machine away too. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, but but we know we know who we were getting. I mean, I don't think he was. I, I don't think anyone reasonably could have expected that um, Donald Trump does a complete pivot away from from the type of uh, aggressive campaign that and successful campaign that he that he ran. Republican and Democratic lawmakers will propose legislation allowing police to take a DNA sample from anyone arrested for a felony. Current law requires police to get a warrant to collect an arrestee's DNA. A proposed bill would simply allow police to collect a DNA sample from anyone arrested for a felony, just like collecting fingerprints. Such legislation has failed for years in both chambers, but Senator Aaron Houchin says there's building momentum to approve it. DNA uh, profiling is an accurate, widely used tool that will help law enforcement solve crimes. Boone County Prosecutor Todd Meyer says law enforcement was able to identify the murderer in a case in Zionsville because of DNA collected from the suspect in Ohio, which already has a law like the one Indiana seeks to pass. We were able to solve this crime uh, based on that DNA sampling that was taken, and it's the 21st century. We started with mugshots, we went to fingerprints, and, and now it's DNA. Houchin's bill would allow arrestees to expunge their DNA record, but only if they are acquitted of the crime. Mike O'Brien, should you have to give over your DNA just because you were arrested? I think so, and I think it's the right time though, now that we have a tangible example of how, how, that, would, how that was helpful um, in solving a crime. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, 100 years ago, and to today, if you're arrested for any crime, um, you have to submit fingerprints and they keep those forever. You know, they don't expunge those. Uh, this law, the, the, the DNA law, um, is currently the law in 30 states and, and the federal government. So um, I think it's the right time to do it. I think there is momentum, to Senator Houchin's point, because we have, we have a real-life example of where it can be helpful. Is DNA the same thing as fingerprints? It's pretty close. And it's actually uh, pretty darn reliable. I, I don't really have a problem with that. I think the expungement in the event that you're acquitted what, what if you're not actually charged? What if you're arrested for it and not charged? I think there ought to be an expungement provision in that, in that regard as well. But it, as long as those safeguards are there, I really don't have a problem with it. I think it's much more reliable than eyewitness testimony, I'll tell you. The case they cited in, in Zionsville, uh, the mm -hmm. guy in Ohio had been arrested, but right. the charges were dismissed. So you're saying in that case... The, that would have been Well, expunged. that's interesting. They were dismissed. <laughs> was he actually charged? Or he was they... charged and they were dismissed. Okay. All right, well, then if they were charged and then dismissed later, if you're arrested for it, you don't necessarily get charged for it. Right. Um, and, and it seems to me if the charges don't come, expungement would be an appropriate remedy. You, you have that happen lots of times where people think they see somebody that looks like somebody. And that, I think, is unfair. But if, if you actually go through the prosecutor's office or the district attorney's office and are charged, I don't have a problem with keeping it. Uh, I said this, is, this bill has failed in the past, uh, both Republicans and Democrats sponsoring it. You have a Republican and a Democrat doing the bill this time. Is this one of those issues where support and opposition doesn't have anything to do with party lines? No, it doesn't. I think it has more to do with your, um, your comfort level on you know, using DNA and having that taken involuntarily, <laughs> basically, um, as a result. I think there are a lot of people who are very conservative in their views of that. And I understand the heartburn that they get from this. I think the prosecutor's analogy and, and drawing the, the parallel between other forms of identification in the past is compelling. 
but I think that there is work to be done on the bill, and if they do uh, make it, if it does get to go forward this year, I think they should consider automatically expunging the record if you're never charged, and automatically expunging the record if you're acquitted, rather than making it something that the but defendant has to, to do. Yeah. Uh, John Schwannis, the House Committee Chair who will hear this bill, uh, Republican Tom Washburn, has said that he will give it a hearing, but he is personally opposed to this and has been for a while. Is that a pretty big roadblock to overcome? Potentially. I mean, in the way that the Indiana General Assembly operates, we, it gives a lot of clout and, and a lot of latitude to chairs of committees. And, and generally speaking, uh, under most circumstances, now granted there's sometimes a little bit of whispering in the ear or a arm twisting a bit from, say, the, the Speaker's uh, office, but it's, it, it can be an impediment. Uh, and it does show that there are some, uh, again, it doesn't necessarily break down along R versus D. It is this notion of are we fearful of the beginning of a Big Brother era, yeah. or, uh, and we see that with any type, all types of surveillance. And, and again, you see this argument, and I've sensed it here today, there are two arguments, and I think they do get mixed. The one about whether this is effective and reliable, I think everybody would stipulate it's more reliable than eyewitness, eyewitness testimony. testimony or anything else. But let's not confuse that argument with the is it right argument, because if you wanted to really take a bite out of crime, you'd test everyone at birth, and you, or you'd in, implant chips, you know. I'm not, I'm not being somewhat You're facetious from a here, but James Coburn no way. No way. <laughs> I said if you want it, if you, if your goal here is is efficacy and the ability to actually take a bite but out of crime, only. you it could do it. It isn't only efficacy. It. It's also the interaction of the criminal justice system with individuals. With individuals and it seems right. to me an arrest that results in a prosecution is more reliable. It doesn't necessarily mean that there'll be a conviction. But, when I think, you know, though, why we, throw that evidence away? But what I think away? we might see, it's now people who get arrested. When will it be people who apply for a government job or a certain type of government licensing? And they'd say teachers, for instance. It's appropriate that because you're seeking a job, it's not your right to have the job. You should give us your DNA. I mean, this will, I think we'll see other instances where... Well, it's gone down that road yeah, all along. Yeah. I mean, that's the way with fingerprinting sure, and other forms sure. of identification. Right. So the and re you do the, the fingerprinting across process. the board on right. that. But right. the concern is real. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should police be allowed to take a DNA sample after every felony arrest? A, yes, if I'm innocent, I have nothing to hide. Or B, no, it's an invasion of privacy. Last week's question, what will Indiana's new student assessment look like? 33% say it'll be a shorter test with quicker results. Only 3% say it'll be a longer test with slower results. But 64% say it will just be I-STEP with a different name. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. Republican Dan Coats delivered his farewell address to the U.S. Senate this week as he wraps up a 34-year career in public service. Coates noted that this was his second farewell address to the Senate after he previously retired in 1998, only to return in 2010. He said the United States is a divided country with two very different visions of the future, but says everyone in the Senate, Republicans and Democrats, are united in their effort to make the country a better place. And while Coates said he didn't want to advise his colleagues on how to govern going forward, he did emphasize what he calls two transition, transcendent issues that jeopardize the nation, terrorism and debt. Today our national debt exceeds $19.5 trillion and continues to grow by the second. And meanwhile, programs that millions of Americans depend on, Social Security and Medicare are too, are creeping ever closer to insolvency. 
America's looming fiscal storm is bearing down upon us, and the alarms are sounding louder each day. And one day, if not addressed, this debt bomb will explode and have a devastating effect on our country's economy and on our children's future. John Katzenberger, what will Dan Coats' legacy be in Indiana? Well, one thing is he'll always be tied with Evan Bayh because they swapped that, that seat a couple of times. Um, and I think that, you know, he's sounding like Governor Daniels used to sound when he was talking about the, the federal debt uh, and the, the debt bomb. I think that might even be a phrase that uh, Governor Daniels used on occasion. So I think that uh, his legacy will be one of uh, steady public service for the state of Indiana. John Schwannis, does a, does a Dan Coats fit in the current political landscape and climate? Uh, it should. I mean, I would like to think that... Uh, uh, there is a, an opportunity for that. When Joe Biden was in the Senate uh, presiding for one of the last times as uh, vice president this week, I think no fewer than a dozen uh, longtime senators from both parties got up and, and paid tribute, but also you could almost, they were waxing nostalgic about a time when you respected your counterparts on the other side of the aisle and that, you could, that your word was your bond, you could trust people, you could work together for the, the betterment of society. And that does seem to be slipping a bit. And just the, the, the duration of his service, I think Dan Coates is a reminder that you can still be a, a civil in your in disagreement, and that uh, public service is something to pay tribute to and honor. I mean, too often now we say, how many years has that person been in office without even paying attention yeah. to what he or she has done? And that's a black mark for every year. And Delaney, is, is Dan Coates' legacy a positive one in Indiana? What is it? What is Indiana, Dan Coates' legacy yeah. in Indiana? He occupied the seat for a lot of years. What, what did he do for Indiana during that period of time? Name me the top five things he's done. I rest my case. <laughs> what are the top five things that Dan Coates has done in Indiana, Michael Bryan? Thanks, Ann. Um, one, 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 I grew up in Illinois. Um, and so I didn't know Dan Coates at all uh, back from his, his, ah, his, his original that's good. service. That's no, good. no, no, but that I'm, excuses I, it. I was going to say this no matter how I was like set up just now. Um, <laughs> so in 2010, I was really skeptical of this guy who I didn't know coming back to Indiana, who I had heard about but really had never met before and didn't didn't know anything about. Um, his legacy for me will be um, being a grown up at the right time uh, at, a, at a period in our um, in our nation's politics and our state's politics with the rise of the Tea Party in 2010. Um, and just the, the culture that has has eroded around political discourse. Uh, so for me, that'll be that'll be the legacy, as, as, as John, I believe, said, a kind of a steady hand at the right time um, in Indiana politics. Wow. Indiana's public colleges and universities made their pitch for funding to the state budget committee this week. Some lawmakers preached caution during the school's presentations, sounding rather pessimistic about how much money the state will have in its new budget. Ivy Tech President Sue Elsperman presented her school's top funding requests, including about $80 million for renovations at the Kokomo and Muncie campuses. Then Budget Committee Chair Tim Brown asked Elsperman whether a gloomy fiscal outlook for the state would change her requests. It is what it is, and uh, because there was no funding two years ago, which many of you are, we just have fallen further behind. Ivy Tech was the only public college not to receive funding for major projects in the last state budget. John Schwannis. Should everybody, including colleges and universities, be preparing to tighten their belts? I think that would be a, a, a wise move. I mean, so we're getting some indications that tax revenues are not coming in at a rate that uh, we would like to see. Uh, not a dire situation, but I think it, it uh, behooves everyone to, to look at the, the side, err on the side of being rather judicious with the spending. But 
this, even regardless of what happens this session, anybody who follows higher education funding realizes the trajectory has, has been unmistakable for 30 or 40 years. It used to be that tax dollars made up uh, maybe yeah. what 60, as much as 60 percent right. even, of operating budgets now for the major. And now it's less. So what it's done is forced, and this is nothing new either, it's forced the schools to go look for other sources. They're commercial. They're trying to get patents, commercialize research, rely on philanthropy. So nothing new. It's just a trend that's it's the reality. John Katzenberger, does this, this, yeah. this air of pessimism around the state's budget, uh, that doesn't seem to match up with what we heard from Republicans who won sweeping statewide victories. Uh, <laughs> Funny how that happened. Well, Shades of 1984 all over again. Um, I, well, we haven't had a tax increase. And I yet. Yeah. Well, we made it through the, uh, the organization day without That's a true. tax increase. That's when it happened in 84. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there is uh, that air of gloom, as, as you uh, said, and I think it's, a, it's reality. Um, we'll get the reality test next week when the revenue forecast is unveiled. We'll see what the economy is expected to do and what that will throw off in tax revenue. We've had a strict regimen in the last 10 to 12 years of reducing tax revenue. There have been tax cuts, and that, of course, means that the state gives up revenue that it otherwise would collect. Put that together with a sluggish growing economy, which is about a 1% or 1.5% annual basis, uh, and it's difficult to get the additional revenue necessary to keep up with all of the things that are costing more money. And so I think that that's a realization by legislators uh, that the reality is they're going to have to be very judicious going forward because there's an aggressive wish list among many legislators in the legislature this year. All right. Governor-elect Eric Holcomb this week tabbed Jim Schellinger as the next Secretary of Commerce. Schellinger, who ran for governor as a Democrat in 2008, has been leading the Indiana Economic Development Corporation for the last year under Mike Pence. Holcomb says Schellinger's experience as a business leader and head of the IEDC will help further advance the state's business climate. Schellinger will replace Victor Smith, who heads to the private sector after four years as Secretary of Commerce. And Delaney, is this the token bit of bipartisanship from the new governor? Or will there be more moves like this in store for America? I certainly don't know what's in Eric Holcomb's mind about what he's going to do. But, I mean, obviously Jim Schellinger was already there under Mike Pence, and so he's a logical choice for this position and, and probably a good choice for the position. We're starting, to see, we're starting to see bits of Eric Holcomb's cabinet come together. What are you taking away from that as you're seeing that form up? Uh, well, I think this is an example that we're not looking at party labels. We're looking at who's the best person to do the job. In this case, Jim Schellinger is the right person to be the, uh, the head of the uh, Department of Commerce. So um, I think the bottom line is you're going to go look for good people. So if you're uh, – party label is not going not to matter as much. Now, I will say that most of the good people happen to be Republicans. <laughs> it would be nice if the, if, the, uh, if the ideology wasn't a huge part of it, if you didn't have to be a, you know, a, a Mike Pence ideologue in order to be in the administration. That's a good thing. This is uh, one of the first big cabinet appointments we've seen come out from the Holcomb transition team. Are you surprised a little at the pace of the transition here, John? He didn't expect to win. <laughs> it's not well, surprising. Well, that's Ann's answer. Uh, <laughs> I think there are probably a lot of reasons. Now, look, you're, you're dealing with seasoned veterans here. Earl Good has done this before. He knows how the process works in the transition and as the chief of staff. So um, I think that it is a situation where uh, they did have a compact campaign. Um, it happened all of a sudden, so they're taking their time and making their picks. And they've also had four years of a Republican governor before, or, well, 12 years of Republican governors before them. And so a lot of people who might have been gung-ho for public service 12 years ago are, have already done that. So they're looking for different people. Well, John, Mike Pence is going to be vice president. 
So and to some degree, the, the pace of the, at the senior level, some of those senior people may be recruited to go. We've already seen people recruited right. to go serve in Washington, D.C. So to some degree, the pace of this transition at a senior level uh, is dictated to some degree by, by the pace of the uh, one at the federal level. And quickly, John Schwannis, the few personnel announcements we've seen have been mostly veterans of the Daniels administration. Do you expect that to continue? Probably. I mean, there will be exceptions, and I think it's smart to, for Governor-elect Holcomb to, or Governor Holcomb to, uh, um, show that there is some willingness to, to reach across the partisan divide. Uh, but I think for the most part these will be familiar names uh, who are at least familiar, if not to most of, of Hoosiers, at least to people who follow closely governance at the state level. All right, finally, Indiana celebrates its 200th birthday this weekend, the state's year-long bicentennial celebration, which has included a new plaza at the State House and a statewide torch relay, culminates with a big party at the fairgrounds on December 11th, which is Statehood Day. Mike O'Brien, what would you want Indiana to get for its 200th birthday? Um, we already got it. We had a Republican landslide on, on November 8th. <laughs> at the federal level, where the Hoosiers are taking over Washington, D.C., where Republicans are in charge in Indiana, it's going to be a... Uh, Good start to the next century. I'm guessing Ann Delaney's answer is a little different. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. In four years, we'll weed the garden. Don't worry. <laughs> but no, I, I, what I'd like to see is universal preschool. I'd like us to get into the 20th century, just the 20th. I'm not even looking for the 21st. John Schwannis. Civility. Uh, let's, uh, let's all be adults and, and try to work through problems. And John Katz. I'd like to see the state find a clear path to the new economy and to be able to prepare its citizens and its, its corporate structure for that so that we can thrive going forward. And a sheet cake. And a sheet cake. Let's <laughs> have a sheet cake. And least. Sunday sales of alcohol. <laughs> Sunday sales wouldn't be bad. Yeah, Sunday be sales, right. universal agreement. <laughs> That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity or Bright House Networks. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.